Let me show you how it's done. Well, well, welcome. You are listening to The Drop, Drop, Drop. podcast on business, tech, and influence. I am one half of The Drop, Tam Danier, head of strategy. I lead insights and product. I focus on tech, in particular, solutions that solve real-world problems. And I'm here with... My name is B. Pagels Minor. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I have been a product manager for over a decade at some of the world's most well-respected companies like Sprout Social, Apple, and Netflix. I've led teams that built important parts of the App Store, launched games at Netflix, built listening at Sprout Social. All in all, my DNA is fully being a product manager. Today on the Drops Podcast, part two of PMF for CPGs, Matt Tumbleson is here to talk about product market fit and consumer packaged goods. Let's start the show. I'm connecting these dots and I'm hearing some things about just how employees at these large companies grow through the ranks. And I think what you're saying to sum it up is to say they've been domesticated and now they don't know how to hunt anymore. And so they're constantly like that pet who just can't go outside without a leash on or whatever. They can't hunt anymore. I think it goes back to this idea about insights. You're saying something interesting about Nielsen. Nielsen is very obvious. And a lot of companies, because they're domesticated, want to be spoon-fed information. So they go to this very obvious thing. But the real insights are closer to the ground. And you got to get really close to the ground or out in the market. And you have to meet the market to find out the things that are not bubbling up and, and not going to Nielsen because they don't have the resources to put this in a report. It's real life. The real people are suffering problems. They don't have the time to document that problem and then give it to Nielsen Media. So it's not going to be there. And that's the privilege that startups have when not having too many resources, not being domesticated, is we don't necessarily start going to online resources to look up reports. We, we hit the ground running because we just experienced something or we're seeing something repeatedly in the market. The broader question is, because of this kind of domestication of large organizations, that they don't have this capacity in-house to see what's closer to the ground, that either one of two things, they have to then rely on M&A to acquire that company at a premium once it's out in the market and proven its point, or they have to somehow figure out how to get that capacity without it being part of this domesticated organization that can't support that capacity, how does a corporation as large as a PNG get startup horsepower without buying a startup? <laughs> so, and I would say even by buying them, they're not getting it. A lot of the startup scrappy team members that are you know, part of an acquisition leave as soon as the golden handcuffs come off. That work gets transitioned over to, to internal employees and frequently it does it in a much worse way than it needs to. And so let's start with the scrappiness, the startup, the insights and how we do it. This is again, my observation. In a startup, I might interview five people and that gives me quite a bit of information. And because I can ask them things, because I can quickly put a real product in front of them, I don't need to spend eight hours with that one consumer. I get pretty good ideas of where I need to go and be spending my time to get me to a product that I can then put in front of them and connect the dots between the insight and the product. I can then iterate that product and get closer and closer and more accurate to a solution for the pain points that they described. At PNG, I was so worried. The first time I attended an insights workshop, I was like, oh gosh, this is going to be so bad. Like it's going to be some framework and it was, and it's going to take all day and it did. And then 
I saw, and I've seen this repeated multiple times with different people. I saw them get down to the deepest, tiniest minutia of a pain point, literally down to what song was on the radio. What are you talking about? We don't have time. Why are you interviewing people down to this level of granularity? And that's when I realized the importance of that kind of insight generation when you cannot, you know, a week later put a product in front of this person. We need to do this better than anyone else. And we have to do this on a level that is more professional, that is consumer expectation of us as a company compared to all of our other brands. We can't release a eh, okay product our product has to be as good as all of our other products when we release it because people ultimately view us as P&G, right? So what that means is the insights have to be that crisp. They have to be repeated amongst hundreds of people inside of an organization. As a startup founder, it might be me and a co-founder and maybe one other person or just me and we're going and we get it. It's It like clicks for us. But if I get hit by a bus the next day, that insight might be gone unless another person with similar skills goes and interviews them. At a PNG, that has to be shared with hundreds, if not thousands of fellow PNGers who are, are potentially going to take over the business work on any of the different aspects of bringing this product to market, those insights continue on as like a a consistent storytelling. And so whether you're meeting with your stakeholders, whether you're meeting with the C-suite, you're meeting with an external company who's going to actually produce the small batches of this while we're in test mode, the insights are what is shared amongst everyone involved. And so I was just blown away at how well they do inside how deep they go at a level that again i was rolling my eyes i was like this is just why we got it we got it let's go and where i thought we were when we had it that first maybe hour or so or that first or second interview i mean we did 50 and every single person on the team listens to every single interview and i'm going this is such a waste of time just come up with the insights and then share them with me. Like you do one, I do one, you do one. I was trying to find the efficiencies. And that's when I realized how absolutely critical it is when building a new product that everyone involved is a part of the insight collection. They might not be the ones interviewing, but they're listening in and they're hearing the intonation and inflection of that consumer and their pain point to really bring out what that is. So when you start creating a solution for them, It's not just here was their pain point, but it's you can envision their pain point almost like with an entire world painted around it. And then you can see the solution dropped into that world and all of the context that goes into it. And so it provides that much more clarity on what to do and if what you do is working. So absolutely blown away. So one, Matt, what I love about your experience is that you have that startup experience, plus you also have this large corporation experience. One of the things that Tam and I primarily have gotten into is helping people understand what you should invest in and what you shouldn't invest in. And so let's take a, a step back. So you, you have the startup, the founder fortunately didn't get hit by a bus, so the insight actually exists. And we know there's really good insight. What would you go through to say, oh, this person has a good idea. How would you go about evaluating that insight from an independent person hearing it? What types of things would you specifically like to hear? And you would say, hey, Mr. Friend, invest in this company. That is a question I'm asked all the time. 
actually. And it's not from the perspective of what would you tell a founder, but it's someone coming to me and saying, hey, I have an idea. It, it's all the time, you know, a friend's mom, a friend's cousin, someone I went to high school with, people like, I'll be at the beach and someone's like, oh, you're in tech, I have an idea. So what I found is the most helpful thing for me was the lean startup. And I think this is, there's a million different versions of the lean startup. So the first thing I ask a founder when they come to me with an idea is, have you read and have you done the lean startup? And if they say no, I say, go and do that first and then come back to me. And I also underscore, you don't literally have to read the entire book. You have to like, blog post something on just rapid iteration to understand consumer feedback, which is very product centric. I think a lot of people have a pain point and then they have an idea or they have something that they think is amazing and you just make it, market it. And then with the right marketing, it's going to be huge. And that's not the case. As a marketer, I can tell you, you cannot market garbage. You might be able to, but it's not going to fit the kind of IDO value equation between the desirability, feasibility, and viability. So once that happens, if they come to me, oh yeah, I did that and that's great. I personally will almost always create false or fake door tests for a product. So I create a landing page. I create like a minimum viable brand where it's just like, okay, it's not bad, but it's not great, but it's good enough to be out there. I could spend probably two days myself coming up with the brand, with the audience who I believe is experiencing this pain point, marketing to them. It's either going to be Facebook or Google, because either we put it in front of them and see how they react, or they tell us that they have this pain point and they choose our solution, depending on those. I set some kind of guardrails. And then if it has better than normal, which just comes from experience, but you can also run some kind of an experiment for the current leader, the current solution that's leading, um, you can run an ad for that as well under your own minimum viable brand. And then I look at them comparatively. I start diving into how big is this? And that's where another thing I learned from, from PNG, TAP, TAM, SOM, TTSS is the way they do it. Legitimately spend days and days and days on how big is this pain point? Really? How much do these consumers not like their current solutions? And that's where I'll use something like a 1Q just to quickly get a, a sense of what's going on with the consumers in the country. And then I put it together and it's almost always that you'll get a, this is not the best solution, but you actually discover what is, or this is a great solution and it might need a couple of tweaks. And that tends to be the two results. Both are good. And in my opinion, if I go back to a founder and I say, Hey, here's just the quick work I did, the diligence I did, either I'm interested in investing or I would make recommendations to my network to invest here's the diligence that I did. Here's what I ended up with. If they come to me and say, okay, thank you so much, but I'm just going to keep going with what I have now. That's a no for me. I'm not going to invest because that's someone who has a very specific idea and that works sometimes, but that's not my investing style and that's not my product creation style. If they say, oh my gosh, that's great. Thank you. Where'd this data come from? And they don't necessarily change it all, but they include it with the body of evidence that they have themselves been collecting. I'm happy. This means this is someone who can pivot, who can make modifications, because as you're going to market, things will change. Your consumer group might be too small. You might need to do some kind of line extensions. Your business is always going to end up growing beyond that single product that you think it's going to. Take the Dollar Shave Clubs of the world, the Harry's of the world. 
they were just blades. And they ended up coming up with different types of blades, different creams, different, they got into to products for women. They really had to expand because the blade might be their initial hero product, but you always have to expand. So a founder who's always listening and collecting that body of evidence, in my mind, is worth investing in. And then if the market is big, and by big, that depends on the person investing. For a PNG, we're talking like they have billion dollar brands, and that's how they talk about things. We're looking for the next billion dollar brand. If it was me personally, I'm okay with a $50 million brand and very few investors. Now, if we're going out and we're getting 10,000 investors and it's a $50 million product, like ugh, our return's not going to be so great. If it's a small scrappy team, and there's actually a company out of Cincinnati, I think it's Cincy Brands, that is doing just that. Very few people with really deep knowledge in CPG creating things and sometimes bringing things in and then selling them to large customers. And it might be a $50 million market and they're doing it fast, like three to six months max of work for a $50 million product that has opportunity to scale up to maybe 200 million, something that's right below the ceiling that a PNG would invest in. And I'm like, gosh, I would invest in that all day long. So it depends on who it is ultimately, who, who I'm making the recommendation to. One thing that I've noticed about the large companies is they like to own everything. So if you're working on this and you own the patent and you've got a moat and you may have developed the technology yourself or you have exclusivity with that, that's where it can sometimes become interesting for a PNG, even if it's not big enough, because they would then say, where else can we apply this? It might be a technology that's like a game changer or something that's just like they can own it and it creates a point of difference between competitors. If not, and you're a small three, four person team and you're making 50, hundred million dollars in revenue, like you're not selling to P&G unless they're giving you a lot of money. Cause this is your recurring revenue stream where you're still very wealthy with a really small group of people and you're doing it repeatedly. So you've got those connections to the customers, to the retailers. You can just bring in another amazing product and those retailers are probably getting great margins and they're seeing growth and there's new things happening there. So if you have the technology, yeah, you might sell it to a, to a PNG, a Unilever, some one of the one of the big companies. But if if it's not big enough and you're just in it as an entrepreneur, maybe borrowing a technology, leasing a technology from someone else, which happens in in the CPG world, there's no chance really to sell to PNG. But you're raking in money, so you don't really care. I think that's a very important point. I always think of Sarah Blakely from Spanx. So Spanx, eventually, they just sold recently in the last couple of years. And so one of the reasons she decided to sell, she said there were two reasons. One, she had gotten to the point in her life that she wanted to do something different. She thought that there was, she had a lot more capacity to do other work. And then secondly, she wanted to be able to cash out for her employees. But the reason I bring up that example is because you know, she created a billion dollar business. It was one, it was a business that was considered to be very niche. Like it's only for women who are vain. I literally read an article about this when it first came out. These are for vain women who don't want their real bodies to show. And it was like very critical. And I just remember thinking, I was like, this person, and it was a man who wrote it. I was like, this man is definitely not married. Because the thing is, Spanx is just, you want a nice silhouette on your body, right? And that's what she's really saying. She's like, I want you to feel comfortable in what you're wearing. And this is what my product does. And this product has now gone on to have so many different types of products within one umbrella. And it's a billion dollar business that she could have kept running independently for probably the rest of her 
life if she had the energy to do that. And she would have still been exponentially more wealthy than many people who work in large corporations. And so I bring up that example because I think that that's a very important point that you're making here, Matt, which is one exit strategy is, oh, it would be great to be acquired by some other company. But the other part of it is, is that you can have a really great sustainable businesses. Another example of that I think is Mars and um, uh, that's based out of Chicago. So, you know, it's like the chocolate family. It's a privately owned company by a family. And it's a family that actually has employees who love them. When I'm on the board with a, a Mars employee, I have never seen a black man cake more for a whole bunch of white people than for than he is about the Mars people. He's like, they are so nice. They are so lovely. Their business strategy is so great. And I was just like, wow. I was like, there's something really powerful about private brands who know exactly who they are and build it. And I think that's one of the other things that's interesting about CPG is I think more so than any other type of product, you really can stay independent for an extended period of time and be exponentially successful because depending on your product, the niche is, is so specific that you really are the greatest expert at catering to that particular niche. And so I think that's something that's very fascinating. And I think it's something important to, to bring up here. Can I explore this or challenge? Just explore this point for a second. Let's talk about things for a second. One of the alternate theories that I had was it's a billion dollar business. Now everybody's noticing. And it's a business that is not hard to enter into. And I do think it was a wise exit because I do believe that she was about to get onslaughted by competition in that space. And it wouldn't be a billion dollar business in a couple years. The one quick thing I will say about this, women's fashion, women's fashion brands in general, I think there's a lot more potential for you. You can have a lot of competition and still have a big enough percentage of the market to be successful. I know this because I've recently started to low key personal shop for my wife. And I am so surprised at the quality of the clothes, the lack of quality of clothes in many women's clothes and how expensive they are compared to, I primarily wear male clothes, much more, much more inexpensive much higher quality. And so one of the things that, you know, as I talk to more women about fashion, women's fashion, you can buy hundreds of items that you don't even wear and it's completely acceptable because you're like, well, you know, my body changes, so it's fine. It's not like that in other niche brands. So I just, I have to put that out there. But what I'm, what I'm saying is, and I want to hear Matt about this is, yeah, there's fast fashion, there's that category. And Forever 21 is closing down shops all over the place because that was a category that's easy to enter. H&M entered it. Shein entered it. There's fashion where all of these things are entering into it. You have someone like Kim Kardashian. You know, fashion, let me just put this insight out there. Here's an insight on fashion. Fashion is not about the same thing that clothing is. Clothing is a need. Fashion is about something else. And so that is an influencer, very market-heavy type of role. And here you have someone like Kim Kardashian, no expertise in manufacturing but skims her lingerie or whatever that line is, which is in the same space as a Spanx, is a billion dollar company faster than Spanx. Sarah Blakely got hers. And so I do think brilliant exit, but I do think that part of that is competition was coming. And I wanted to exit at a time when the brand still had that brand equity because, you know, alongside Macy's was Spanx and another brand. And then it's going to be another brand. And then eventually, if anybody executes the target strategy, which is we'll sell you until we copy you, I think that was coming. What are your thoughts, Matt? Yeah, I, so I have a hard time with fashion because to your point, it's a unique, if you look at it through the lens of pain point solution, it's a unique pain point, right? Because it's individualistic and it's changes so frequently. But I, I want to first start with Spanx. And their exit. And B, you mentioned something about kind of the altruistic nature of the founder. I want my team and my employees. So whether that's 
100% true or not. That's the story I want to believe. I've been in a company where everybody was promised, we all had our options, we all had our equity in the company, and that's worthless unless there's an exit. And in that exit, when I was later a founder myself, I didn't realize the power the founder has to either make good on their promise to their employees or keep it all for themselves. There are easy maneuvers a founder can do to say, oh yeah, look at all those options you got. We're just gonna change the value of them and I'm going to keep this percent of the company and see you later, I'll be on my yacht, security, please escort them. That is sad when founders do that. And I've seen some startups that did that. So for the founder of Spanx, she's been a, an inspirational role model, I think, in the startup world for many years, doing amazing things for her team and her employees. So I'm going to believe that the exit was less about competition, but it's true. It was happening. There was almost like a commoditization of these products. But Spanx built a brand of a product that you never even see the logo. And I think that is partially the quality and form and function of the product, but also the stories that we're telling of the founder and the employees and how this was almost like a home-built product by an entrepreneur and her team. And so that's the story that I'm going to hopefully remember. Spanx defined a category for sure. She didn't invent the shapewear, but she definitely defined it. And I will say that I don't think that the two things are mutually exclusive. I do think she did the wise thing knowing that competition was coming. She was not an arrogant founder. And I do think the story that is out there is true, but there's probably some other context as well. We are on a roll. How does a company like a P&G assess PMF? You're a company that has a built-in audience. You can say brought to you by P&G and there's a built-in market that's going to buy something. How does a company like that really assess where... PMF is. is it I guess that's why we're here, right? That was the main goal of our conversation. It is going back from the mentality of how I first learned how PNG looks at this, anyone with a washing machine, anyone with a dishwasher. And we started working with them. This was some work that I did consulting prior to working there on narrowing it down. And it took a lot of effort for them to see smaller audiences make up a larger opportunity, but they got there. They got there. And so when we started talking about product market fit again, this is years ago before I was there full time, someone asked me, well, when you hit product market fit, can you do it in D to C? Because this is when D to C was like all the rage, right? You don't have to go through selling it to, to the retailers. We can just make a website, sell it. And, and basically I would, I would look at this as the question of almost can, can a PNG copy a Dollar Shave Club, a native, etc., to achieve massive success online and then go in store. Because what they're thinking is product market fit, if we could get it digitally and then prove that we have it, then we can go to these retailers where it's a much larger investment. We're in 10,000 stores. We're obviously producing significantly larger quantities. If we have product market fit digitally, then can we then determine, all right, it's lower risk for us to invest in these retailers. And so if someone asked me one time, one of the finance and accounting people, what percent of a market do you need to capture to determine you've reached product market fit? And I thought, oh, that's so interesting. I never thought of it in terms of a specific percent. Obviously, we've got crossing the chasm and all these other discussion points that we have. 
but a specific percent. I saw it more as an efficiency where you have a pain point, you have the best solution, you can market it to people, they buy it, is the best, they continue buying it. Once I prove that, and it's a big enough market for me as an individual investor or a giant PNG, you invest, you've hit product market fit, you invest and go. So I started thinking how, what percent of the total market would we need to reach? And fast forward multiple years, and I decided that it's less of the total size of the total market and more of the size of the market who would be purchasing online, which is obviously a subset of the larger market, right? If we can reach a small enough subset of that is still big enough for us to believe it's true. So not 10 people, we're talking thousands who have an opportunity to buy this in a market against other potential solutions. So they see us against other people, they choose us and they choose us again. So I need to go through a full repurchase and they're still happy which online equals four and a half stars that equals in a survey, you can do a deprivation test. If this didn't exist anymore, how would you feel about going to the next product? You can do those same types of things in a digital environment with e-commerce, like a Shopify store, for example, that then tells me that the product is good. That doesn't necessarily tell me all the other parts of the business, the distribution, the brand, but guess what? I don't ever have to worry about distribution and brand at Procter & Gamble. We have the best distribution, the best brand marketers on the planet. That's not an assumption I need to test. So what I need to know is that that product is good. And there was a lot of stepping on toes because at, at a PNG, the product is obviously R&D and brand, the role that I was in is like the CEO or the executive over it, but you let the R&D team do their work. And so when we started working together, it was magic. It was magic. But that what I was looking for product market fit was an online subsegment that is e easy to reach, chooses our product against other potential products. So that means we're in the actual market. And this could be on like an Amazon 3PL kind of thing. It could be on Walmart Marketplace, which like a third party can sell their product. This can be on Google. This can be in anywhere that a consumer could basically enter in some search terms, which indicate they have this pain point and solutions come up, us being one of them. They choose us at a pretty good cadence and they give up their old product and then continue using ours. That to me is indicative of product market fit in CPG. From there, you can then invest. And again, the brand, the distribution, I never had to worry about that because we have the best people PNG has the best people in the world, but I wanted to make sure the product was the best for people who used it. They became almost addicted to it. That to me was PMF. Stay tuned for part three next week on The Drops. Thank you so much for listening to The Drops podcast. We love having you. We love your feedback. Please do connect with us across social media. We are The Drops podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And we also have a great email, thedropspodcast at gmail.com. You can send in any questions that you have, and we definitely would love to answer them on the podcast. Feel free to ask just about anything because we have experienced a ton of different things. Again, thank you so much for listening to The Drops podcast.